Sarah Henstra is a professor of English at Ryerson University and author of the young adult novel Mad Miss Mimic. It reminds me of uh, those books that uh, Margaret Atwood did, Purple. Oh, the children's books. Children's yeah. books, yeah. Penelope this and the, yes, yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. But this isn't children, this is uh, young adults. This yeah. is young adults. And The Red Word is her uh, first work of uh, adult fiction and has just won the Governor General's Award for uh, fiction. Congratulations. Thanks a lot, Nigel. I assume that the title is riffing off The Scarlet Letter? That's an interesting intertext, actually. I mean, you know, it's a fairly common phrase. It's an evocative phrase, the red word, and it can refer to all kinds of different fraught symbols or historical, you know, words that lead into battle or words that uh, hurl an accusation between one group and another. Yeah, it was, it was selected for the title out of the book because there is a reference in the novel to a red word. There are a couple of references to different words being a red word. Rape being one of them? And rape is one of the words, yeah. At one point, the protagonist, Karen, um, is reluctant to call uh, one of the things that's happened in the novel rape. She doesn't want to phrase it that way because she says that, red, that rape is a red word. It's a greedy word that uh, sort of casts dispersions in all directions, including on the person who's making the accusation, draws a lot of public scrutiny and, uh, and attention that you know maybe an accuser, even if they have been wronged in some way, doesn't want that kind of attention suddenly um, put on herself and all of her actions. Yeah, speaking of that, in the Scarlet uh, Letter, the protagonist is accused of adultery, and she has to do this walk of shame yeah, it is a fascinating intertext, actually, for what I'm doing in in, uh, in this novel. And it's incredible that... It's always incredible to me how things come up in conversation about the novel I've written, and they weren't a conscious part of what I was writing, but they make a lot of sense. And, of course, I've read The Scarlet Letter, I studied The Scarlet Letter, I've taught The Scarlet Letter and uh, over the years, years ago. And it makes perfect sense that it's it's bubbling in there under the surface, you know, mm-hmm. while I'm while I'm writing this. Yeah, I think accusation and shame are both very important motifs in my novel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that makes a lot of sense. Well, I guess the thing that stuck out for me too is that there's this double standard. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's okay for the guy to screw around, but uh, but heaven forbid that a woman do something like that. Yeah, it's a very different, and it, it's the same sexual behavior in a lot of cases, same sort of party mandate, you know, but the young women who get involved in it, the repercussions are very different for them, socially speaking, you mm-hmm. know, than, than, than they are for the young men. The double standard is sort of a, um, a topic that runs throughout the novel, you know, and, and just the differences uh, in how masculinity is celebrated for being... Uh, aggressive and yeah, sexually promiscuous and um, almost predatory in a way. Um, and femininity is meant to be passive and chaste and sort of femininity is meant to be the repository for all moral behavior essentially, right? The, the, the young women are supposed to keep the young men in line somehow and when they don't, when they make other choices to either go along with it or have their own sexual adventures, they're called out pretty quickly and shamed, publicly shamed pretty quickly. You are communicating with, uh, with Greek mythology in, uh, in, in the book. 
I've recently, you know, I, I believe it's the Iliad that you play or pay most attention to. I've just recently read uh, the Odyssey, reread the Odyssey, and of course Penelope is getting hit on for 10 years after the war. Yes, and holding out. And holding time, out. Right? and that's Remaining faithful and waiting. Exactly, and that's seen as, obviously, as, a, as something to be uh, cherished and admired. Yeah, her virtue consists of, you know, sort of putting up walls and walling herself in with her maids, right, to resist the... The, the encroaching of these sort of ravenous suitors who are after her, but they're also after the kingdom, of That's course. Right, she, sort of, she sort of stands as the repository for all the wealth and all the inheritance there, and she has to sort of, yeah, she has to hold out until Odysseus returns. Yeah, whereas, of course, Odysseus is screwing his brains out on different <laughs> islands. Right. Typical adventurer, right? Yeah, and getting caught in the snares of various female goddesses That's right. and sirens. It's not his fault. No, he, you know, he has to sort of extricate himself from their clutches over yeah. the span of 10 years or however long it takes him, right, on, on the island with Circe and the other, the other goddesses who, uh, you know, pleasure goddesses, essentially, but who, who, whom eventually he also has to escape their yeah. clutches and leave, yeah. So very much the double standard. The double yeah. standard, and also Penelope is being accused the whole time, too, all that time by her own son, who, is, who sees her as unfaithful and fickle and, you know, is... is uh, is trying to voice the concerns of his absent father, you know, and remind mm. her of her duties, her filial duties to him and that sort of thing. So it's not like she's not under fire the whole time as well for her behavior. Right. I didn't get that so much as he's just yearning for his father to come back so that they can, or his father can slay the yeah. suitors. Yeah, and he's, you tell, he's the rightful inheritor too of mm. the property, right? So he's yeah. waiting for justice. The job of the cultural critic is to examine the world and its stories, picking apart what is problematic and shining a light on unconscious and unexamined biases and attitudes. That's Becky Robinson in Quill and Choir. Well done, Becky. <laughs> which I, th I actually I thought it was kind of funny that she's reviewing your your book she's right. not exactly unbiased i'm not sure what her affiliation is with ecw actually that's interesting but that's uh yeah that happens a lot in the publishing industry it sure does <laughs> are you as a novelist playing the role of a cultural critic here not consciously not directly but i i do think i i believe that novelists are like other artists in that they're they're really um drawn toward things that aren't being talked about explicitly in, mm. in society. Um, the sort of tensions that run underneath the, the, the conversations, you know, and they, and at least for me as a writer, uh, I steer toward that because that's where my curiosity takes me, you know, mm -hmm. to the places where it's like, why does nobody know how to talk about this? Or why is no one refusing to talk about certain things? You know, when you hear these sort of public debates go round and round in the media and and there's a there's an undercurrent of tension there mm. and I think that as a writer I'm drawn to that tension I want to I want to delve deeper into what people are having trouble saying or feel they can't say or don't know how to talk about and you know I work with language so the things that the, the, the the frontiers of what we know how to talk about, those are the places that interest me most as a novelist. So I think in doing that, in pursuing the unspoken or the uncomfortable or the, the not yet 
um, maybe even conscious in our social discourse. I think I, I think writers in general end up examining the unspoken assumptions, and they end up um, playing that role, you know, that Becky describes of of becoming kind of cultural critics, calling out certain mm. positions that people take, you know. But I don't think it's a I don't think it's an intentional thing because then we wouldn't be writing fiction. We would be writing op-ed pieces, mm -hmm. you know, and, and taking it on much more directly. Well, in fact, I mean, the, uh, the novel has taken you, you know, five to seven years to write. Absolutely, right? yeah. So you were uh, thinking hard about this sort of thing many years before Me Too suddenly hit the hit yeah. the screen, and Me Too it. Isn't it's not unconscious. It's very much in the forefront now. Yeah. It, but I don't. I think you're right. People, when they're discussing this thing, they, it's just pure anger that we're getting now. We're not getting much dialogue. Um, well, I don't know if I agree with that. I think that the Me Too movement has allowed a kind of dialogue that wasn't there before, and I think the anger was in the back rooms before uh, and I was in a lot of those back rooms with other women you know with w fellow professors and fellow artists and fellow uh, former graduate students and people who had a lot of these experiences that Me Too the Me Too movement is bringing out into public mm -hmm. discourse um, into the media and I think the the kinds of um, mutual distrust between men and women and you know um, accusations against men in position of power that got swept under the carpet and kept quiet in corporations or various organizations. They were there. It's not like these things weren't happening all along. It's just that nobody was talking about it in the media. Nobody was talking about it in public. So what feels like this outpouring of anger and hostility, mm. in fact, is a kind of um, just a light being shone on this kind of long-standing power imbalance that's been there for a long time, you know, and mm -hmm. and the idea of public outrage is interesting because it makes it sound like it's all being fomented in the moment, mm -hmm. but in fact, I think that um, the, the, the distrust and resentment and um, stories have always been there. They've always been simmering. There's just been no place to air them publicly, mm -hmm. and so it's not like there's more anger. It's just like it's actually being put into words, which I think is a very productive thing. You yeah, know? for sure, yeah. yeah. And I think you were, you, you had your antennae up five or seven years ago, and and now it's it, the the the, the novel has been published. It's being rewarded, and I just wonder what you think was in the heads of the judges. Is this a literary masterpiece, or is it a, a masterpiece of social commentary, or both? I mean, well, it's, I mean, yeah, of course, as the writer, I'm going to be, of course, it's a masterpiece <laughs> on all levels. Of course it is. Um, but honestly, uh, I, you know, my best estimation of it from the judge's perspective, based on the citation of, you know, that they gave the book and based on the feedback I've had is, is actually that this book has been called timely since the moment it was published, you know, mm -hmm. and, and that's a lucky thing that the, the themes in the novel or the, the social issues in the novel are um, something that resonate with, you know, a, a public discussion. Mm -hmm. um, but also this book has been received with some various levels of discomfort by readers who don't find it a straightforward social, you know, the championing of the Me Too movement. They're not mm. finding, if they're looking for that in the novel, they're not really finding that. And in fact, you know, I've had uh, responses from readers who say, you know, I tried to read it, but it was all that Greek stuff 
it's not really my thing. You know, it's it's really clear you're a professor. You're kind of writing at a level that I'm that type of response, and also uh, people who are quite deeply dis discomforted by the fact that the novel does not have a clear sort of moral trajectory where you can identify immediately who is in the right and that and those people find justice by the end of the novel. I don't that's not my project in mm. this novel. So so the level of um, attention to language and to the, the the sort of intertextual element of the Greek myth, that that long heritage of Western mythology that I allowed, you know, to really max out in the novel. And a lot of that murky thematically murky material, those were things that I was engaged deeply with on a literary level you mm -hmm. know so in that sense I, I think it I think I can go ahead as the author and claim that it's a literary achievement as well as a thematic or social um, you know uh, timely project yeah it's very Greek in the sense that uh, the ending isn't sort of filled with hope no and and that's like I mean Greek mythology isn't filled with hope because no. the gods pack up and go back up to Olympus and and leave the human bodies littered all over the mountainsides mm -hmm. you know and and I think um I felt it would be doing a huge injustice to the the issues and then the, the um you know to to try to tidy things up or to make it a, a, a clear you know um, sort of positive resolution because I don't mm -hmm. think I don't think uh, it would be honest I don't think we're there well, it's Socratic too. It's it's kind of a dialogue, isn't it? Yeah, I play with that quite a bit, actually, and mm. and I have to say, I had uh, as as a writer, I had so much fun with it, playing with the the Greek. There's these pages, a few pages scattered throughout the book, where the 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 group of female friends who live in the um, sort of feminist, woman-centered, you know, eco-friendly, vegan household. Uh, are sitting around chatting, and it says that the women of the house, um, you know, hold forth amongst themselves on the topic of X, and then there's like a, a dialogue written out with their, their dialogue tags, kind of like a script from a play, and that's just sheer fun with the idea of a Greek chorus, mm -hmm. right, and how it kind of, you know, the experience of being in graduate school or in undergrad and just the kind of endless conversations over glasses of wine that go round and round around ideas of, you know, what is cinema? What is the role of cinema in society? Or just random, you know, any topic at all can be debated at that age because young young people, you know, coming to university for the first time, they're realizing that all these ideas are up for grabs in a way mm. that they didn't realize maybe as teenagers, you know, that everything they took as a given, that their parents taught them as givens growing up, um, come under scrutiny. If you're in a certain type of undergraduate setting where you're taking some philosophy classes or some cultural studies classes and you realize that all the unspoken, you know, hegemonic assumptions in society can be debated and, you know, you can, you can imagine different ways of thinking and different ways of uh, understanding the world and there's that incredible sort of excitement in that and, uh, and I, I had, a, I had a, a really good time capturing that, I guess it's, it's my own memories of that period in my life too, mm -hmm. I'm an academic, I spent a long time in university and mm -hmm. it participated in a lot of those endless round and round discussions on on every topic under the sun you know well and you layer on top of that all the sexual excitement it's it's a really a, a special time in life isn't it yeah and I, and also uh, there's one character named Sharla amongst the women in the book who makes the makes the case that you can't separate out the sexual excitement from the intellectual excitement mm -hmm. and that in fact feminist theory is hot 
and all this discourse about misogyny and gender hatred is so hot. And the others are saying, oh, it, you know, it undermines it to say that it's hot. Stop saying that. And she's like, come on, it, it, you know, like, stop trying to pretend that we're not turned on by these ideas at the same time as we're mm-hmm. intellectually excited by them. Yeah, well, it, it, there's a power struggle. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's, that's very, uh, can be very erotic. Well, it's a huge part of eroticism, right? Mm-hmm. Is the struggle for power yeah. and, and the tension there. Yeah, for sure. So Karen Hulls, and I thought of the hulls of the Greek ships. I don't know if you uh, tried to put that in there it's, intentionally. It's, or? No, see, these are fabulous things that happen. But yeah, sort of just an empty shell or ready to be filled. Like, I, you know, it, yeah. She's a Canadian sophomore at an Ivy League college in the 1990s. Uh, why did you choose the 90s instead of a present day? I mean, I'm on a campus every day. I teach at Ryerson University, so I interact with undergraduates. My characters are undergraduate students, right, in their second year and third year and upward. And I, um, I just felt, because I'm, because I'm narrating insider cultures among students, these sort of subcultures of the skater boys and the frat boys and the, you know, the journalist students, I felt like I really needed to get the exact details right as much as possible. And uh, it was much, honestly, easier for me with my own research and mm-hmm. my access to go back in my own memory yeah. and then corroborate little cultural details from that time period than it would be for me to try to, I don't know, insinuate myself in group with groups of my students and try to get their language and their exact music they're listening yeah. to. It just would yeah. be fraudulent in a sure. way. I could do it, but it would be a lot more work. So sure. in some ways, it was a it is a historical novel. You mm-hmm. know, essentially, mm-hmm. it's 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 that old, and and it it really um, it's really saturated with the music and the cultural, like the brands and the you know the the food items one would bring to a potluck. There, it, it's in the end, it it has a, a feel that's different from today. I mean, there's no social media in the novel, yeah. for one thing, right? Yeah. And that, that makes it a fundamentally different public uh, situation. And you flip back and forth between the past and the present, which is a kind of a Greek epic technique, isn't it? Yeah, I was interested in um, portraying the fallout, the impact of the events that happened in the past mm-hmm. on the characters in the present. And, and actually, the present is a very thin in the novel compared to the past. It's yeah. intentionally so. The, the main character, Karen, is is experiencing a thinned out experience of adult life. And and that that feels, it's meant to feel thin in the novel and sort of insubstantial because she's essentially still dwelling in the past. Mm-hmm. And part of why she's compelled to revisit in memory and in conversation the events of the past is because she's she's stuck she's unable to move forward in her life in the present essentially she needs to go back emotionally and psychologically and work through the catastrophic events of you know the mid 90s that happened to her and, and that she participated in mm-hmm. when she was a student in order to try to achieve some sense of closure or resolution to move forward with her with her present life which takes place in 2010 so even mm-hmm. that is a a while ago now but um, yeah, there's not a lot of substance in Karen's life, or she, she's not deeply connected to her life in the present, and that's uh, that's that's intentional in the book. It's been accused of being melodramatic. Yeah, so is Greek mythology. <laughs> it's really melodramatic. Yeah, yeah. And that was one of the things that drew me to the Greek intertext is uh, is how 
how high the stakes feel when you're in, a, you know, an undergrad program, and when you're that age, you're post-adolescent. You know, if you get broken up with, mm. it's the end of your world. You know, if you're, if you're. Well, if, first love is huge, isn't it? Yeah, and so the the melodrama is. Uh, it's a reflection of the experience of the characters, absolutely, that things do not feel uh, lukewarm when you're that age. <laughs> things in the present feel lukewarm for Karen, for the narrator, by yeah. contrast. Yeah. But things in the past, I mean, that's, you know, life and death, yeah. literally. Stakes. Stakes, life yeah. Life and death well, stakes. Suicide is, it's a topic, isn't it? Yeah, it, mm -hmm. it comes up in the novel, for sure. Mm -hmm. And uh, and uh, just the emotional... Um, I guess in some cases pre-existing conditions in the characters you know that's something that I have been experiencing as a as a professor I've been encountering it how um, and this is in the in the news too it's statistically true that more and more students um, are confronted with mental health with pre-existing mental health issues when they come to university because mm -hmm. in their parents houses it's been managed with their parents' help, and so they've had a, a, a very um, often a, a very stable or more stable support structure through high school. So even if they had underlying depression or other, you know, uh, mental health issues, they're sort of ferried through with the help of their parents. They're ferried through the end of high school and off to university. But then they're away from that support network. They're in a dorm. They're staying up late. Often they're drinking and experimenting with, you know, various crazy schedules. And and they're and then they have this pressure at school and mental health issues that they may already have been struggling or were latent um, come out and and cause real problems for them. In mm. in I I see that a lot in amongst my students. And so that's that's in this novel too. That students are sort of thrown onto their own you know, their own resources, and those resources are not off, are not always rock solid, right? Karen is invited to live in this sort of feminist household, but she starts going out with one of the frat brothers, the uh, Gangbang Central, it's nicknamed uh, GBC, and so she gets a first-hand look at how toxic and sexist the flip side is. What I was interested when I approached the writing of this novel was that experience of in-groups and how different one can be from another. Mm. And they're all part of the same campus with the same official sort of way of looking at life, which is, you know, liberal humanities programs. And But within that, there are these radically different cultures, these micro-cultures. And uh, the main character, Karen, she's... Um, she knows all these people from her first year, but not very well. So she's friends with Mike, the fraternity brother that she hooks up with at the first party of the year. She's like, hey, you know, and they, they hang out and they end up, you know, having sex at this party. She knew him already from her first year, just from classes. And likewise, she answers a housing ad. Uh, she wants to live off campus and she answers an ad in the housing office because she recognizes the woman's name, the contact name, from someone who was in her, some of her classes that she never spoke to but admired her outspokenness and the way she seemed to know all this vocabulary that Karen herself doesn't know. Mm. So she's attracted to this group of feminists. She wants to know what they know. She feels like they're worldly and intellectual in a way that she yearns to be herself. Mm -hmm. And also at the fraternity house, she wants to be part of that 
revelry. She wants to be part of that. What she sees as bacchanalia. Yeah, yeah, she wants to. She wants to be in the swim of that, and she enjoys the fact that she that dating Mike, one of the frat brothers, gives her a kind of a status, like an insider status there. So she spends a lot of time at the fraternity house, and essentially she ends up moving back and forth. Through, throughout a good chunk of the novel as a, as a kind of a spy almost between these two enemy camps which become increasingly hostile to one another as you know the feminist students t- uh, develop this campaign to expose the, the, the mistreatment of women in the fraternity. And she makes excuses for the boys behavior. She does because she's friends with them uh, you know, the other women just find them deplorable and dismiss them as these immoral assholes, essentially. But Karen yeah. has uh, empathy for them. She's seen them in their sleepy, hungover moments, <laughs> and she sees their stupid jokes and, you know, how cute they can be with each other. And so she, in the same way that she has a deep affinity with the female, with her roommates, yeah. and is fond of them and has had great chats with them, she's also fond of the frat boys. And she sees that most of them are well-meaning and just want to party, and they don't take school very seriously. But they're not—they're not openly um, depraved people, you know. The yeah. vast majority of them. And what you do is capture the feverish—the feverish binarism of this debate. Yeah. Well, it's Karen, the protagonist, who experiences the, the biggest sort of cognitive dissonance and the split in her own mind mm-hmm. between these two ways of looking at the world, essentially, you know? Yeah. What is school for? What is sex for? Mm. What is class for? You know, they have wildly different views on all those things, the two, the two, uh, the group of feminists and the, and the group of frat boys. That, yeah, that brought up, this binarism brought up the idea that... At least men see it this way anyway. There's rape, there's violence, and then there's being a bit of a jerk. So there's a sliding scale, and yet men seem to be tarred with one brush. Well, I think that that's not... I think in the book, it's not only the men that are tarred with one brush. It's the women, too. And that's there's that hinge word in the book, right, which is rape, which is that as soon as that word is used, is employed mm. by a woman or a man in a context, it throws the whole discussion onto another, like yeah. sort of over the fence into a different field, yeah. where one group becomes the accused and very defensive, and they all kind of band together to change the facts and hide the facts, and so she, you know, she wasn't even at the fraud house, that sort of thing, defensive. And the accusing woman and the people supporting her or whatever, they are suddenly cast into a camp where they have to be absolutely impeccable in their behavior and attitudes, and otherwise they, they their own sexual history is trotted out and used against them in all the public settings, right? So they have to become these completely sort of chaste, virginal, you know, also defensively so, mm-hmm. um, in order for that accusation to operate in the way it's meant to in the, in the you know, um, campus inquiries or the courtroom or the media or anywhere. Yeah. And so it puts everyone into this position where there cannot be any dialogue between the two groups. Exactly. And, they, yeah. and I'm not saying that rape accusations are something that shouldn't exist and that we don't need the legal system and we don't need the justice and the, and the legal recourse when, when you know, these very clear lines get crossed. It's just that in in a lot of circumstances, it's a it's a kind of a, a like a guillotine comes down, and there can be no further you know discussion, and and that's that's part of the idea of calling rape a red word, right? Is yeah, there's, a, there's an image just where, like racist. 
it's it's, it's, a, it's a show yeah stopper. and it's not that we have it's not that we can ban the word it's not that we can't have those discussions we need them that's absolutely crucial to call it what it is right but that but the effort to call it what it is it really troubles the characters throughout this novel they keep saying it's not really rape is it or yeah. you can call yeah. it that but it's actually this like the, the 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 fight over what to call it is integral in the well, book well th- that's the thing it's not it's not just rape rape is rape and then there's a whole range of yeah. other things there's a whole range of behaviors that's yeah. right and uh, and it's all those shades of gray that are that are really difficult to continue to navigate and also this novel is set before the era of the language around consent, which is mm-hmm. really the the prevailing agreed upon language now in university, and that's a huge part of what makes this a historical novel, is mm-hmm. that there's there's a bit of discussion about consent in this novel. Mostly, it has to do with if a woman is incapacitated with alcohol, she can't give consent. Like mm-hmm. that, that's something that's talked about in this novel. But the idea of consent and what it can actually mean in the way of a positive discussion or just a positive set of um, agreed upon terms, you know, in, in sexual um, encounters isn't really there. It's not available to the characters in this novel. And I think that's, a, that's one way forward from a lot of these sort of um, vocabulary quandaries, you know, that, that are troubling the characters in this novel. Yeah, I think you mentioned somewhere that, uh, that we have the vocabulary now whereas we didn't before. Yeah, I don't think yeah. we've mastered the vocabulary. No, I no. think there's still a long way to go, but I think it's better than it was. I mean, there yeah. was in the 90s, this, the big discussion was we shouldn't call it date rape. We should call it acquaintance rape because it's not just when you're out on a date with a stranger. Really what we're talking about are, you know, sexual assaults that happen because the person knows you and you know them and they, they cross these lines and they assume that you're okay with, you know, having sex. And and that was, I mean, that's that was a vocabulary move back in the 90s, but I think we're quite some distance ahead of that now. Speaking of the uh, the environment at the university, I, I don't know if this is you or, or someone else, but it's a super oxygenated atmosphere of attention and information and privilege and power. That's you, right? That's in the novel, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah it's a very good way of describing it. Yeah, it's a kind of a late in the novel, that's a passage that... Uh, Karen is sort of reflecting back on that heady mix of intellectual stimulation and also sort of self-importance that a lot of students at that age believe they're going to change the world and they believe that they're in the moment that matters most in all of history right now because of all these topics they're talking about. And then it could be a slow process of, of disappointment, you know, an anticlimax later on as you become an adult and realize that oh, those moments felt like that, but they weren't actually changing the world. They were in this little bubble of privilege, actually, you know, mm-hmm. on a university campus. Um, I'm not going to get into the definitions of strope, anti-strophe, and epode, unless you want to. Those are devices that are used in Greek epic, Greek uh, plays on stage, that are just a kind of a circling the first act is a circling forward, a moving toward a certain set of conclusions, and then antistrophe, antistrophe is is when that circle reverses, and you get all the counter impulses and counter arguments come into the drop the drama, and then the epode is is like the after song. It's the sort of conclusion that the chorus comes in and tries to make it seem universal and applicable. Yeah, so it's it has to do with the pulses of ancient Greek drama essentially. And you I'm, wanted to to 
put that in the, the novel so the people book, knew about that. Well, the novel's written in three, roughly in three acts, book yeah. one, book two, two, book three, and I'm just having so much fun with all that Greek stuff mm-hmm. that I just I called <laughs> it that. And whether it actually, whether someone were, you know, some student someday writing an essay on the red word, are they going to be able to find evidence that we've got a circling and then a counter-circling in terms of the book's rhetorical position? I don't know. <laughs> Good luck. Good luck to them. <laughs> That's not my job. We did touch on this, but the fact that there's uh, really no side of the debate that goes unchallenged, you sort of highlight the fact that not all boys are alike and not all feminists are alike. There's a wide range of beliefs within each. Yeah, and I'm, one of the things I'm interested in is uh, in the novel is the difference between the way that people behave as individuals mm-hmm. when confronted with a, a, cer- a set of choices or difficult circumstances or the way that they behave when they're in a group. And so group psychology uh, is something that really interests me and the, and the sort of mob mentality that can take over and, and amplify certain types of behavior. There, there, in the novel, there is a kind of mob mentality that takes over, not just for the fraternity boys when they're at a party, you know, and all hell breaks loose, but, but amongst the feminist students too, when they're, they're in an activist setting or they're having their own type of celebration, they, there's a kind of a, a kind of a chaos sets in that sets um, good sense to one side and sets, you know, ethical behavior to one side. And that happens on both, on both sides of the debate. The novelist be, has been accused of trivializing uh, an important topic, right? The fact that Karen is dumb and stays dumb throughout. How do you respond to that? Um, well, I'm not sure how that would trivialize the topic because I think what I'm, you know, what we have in Karen is a, a, a narrator who's immobilized by the um, inability to act in the face of, you know, violence, but also in the face of people she cares about behaving in ways that are deeply shocking to her. You know, and she doesn't know how to. She doesn't know how to blast through all of that with her own action and decisiveness and decision. And instead, she becomes a very passive and receptive type of character, where she's she's essentially playing the classic role that a narrator in a novel mm-hmm. of high drama plays, where she's recording the action yeah. and she's trying to sift through its repercussions for herself, but she can't in the space of the action itself. So if you think about the Great Gatsby and Nick Carraway recording these big personalities around him. He's not hes not a hugely decisive or active character himself, no. right? He becomes, he's just got this little cottage. Right. And you can see what's, thanks to him, you know what's going yeah, on Yeah, and you mansion. know, there, possibly if you're deeply in love with Gatsby and you see the tragedy coming upon him, you want to shake Nick by the shoulders mm-hmm. and say, step up! You know, and in the same way, there's frustration about Karen, who who is kind of crippled by her own uh, role as witness, and, and or at least... Um, doesn't doesn't know how to move from being a witness to being an actor and i think the the frame narrative in this novel where karen is revisiting these events and sifting through them um for herself as an adult that's her finally trying to process some of this stuff and and take some ownership of what happened and move on but that doesn't happen for her until you know 10 15 years after the the, the big dramatic events in, mm-hmm. in the novel that take place. And there's only the smallest suggestion that she's going to be able to move forward um, from all of this at the end of the book. 
but I think the suggestion is there. And I think I think that rather than trivializing the issue of rape or the, the problem of rape, the novel is circling constantly and obsessively yeah. around that problem, mm-hmm. you know? And, and, and that's um, what's happening right now in society. And it's not solving that problem. No. So in that sense, I don't, you know, it's, it's uh, showing the problem as an intractable problem, you know, and, and one that we need to be working on, but not one that, that I know how to solve, you know? Well, Aristophanes knows how to solve it. <laughs> uh, in Lysistrata, his play, there's a woman whose mission it is to end the Pel- uh, Peloponnesian War uh, between Greek city-states. And her solution is to deny sex to all the men. So maybe that maybe that's the, the course that should be taken. Yeah, the problem is then the women don't get to have sex either. And yeah, back then that didn't matter, but it sure <laughs> does now. <laughs> well, that, yeah, I mean, that actually that is a kind of a dilemma that the female students talk about amongst themselves and right. grapple with, is that how do you, as a woman, in a culture, you know, where there's this... Uh, disparity between the genders and what access they have to power and freedom and agency, right? The frat boys can do whatever they want, still get great jobs after university. The female medical students are sitting there talking about which professor they have to wear low-cut shirts near in order to get better grades. You know, they're just in two completely different positions of power there Mm. in terms of how to get ahead in society. And when you're in that situation, how do you, what kinds of actual free choices can you make around your own sexual desires, right, as a woman? And then the students are trying to figure that out. And some of them are very consciously trying to pursue sexual freedom for themselves. And that, in some ways, is the most radical um, set of acts and conversations in the novel. Because in a context where the genders are like cast into such different roles, what does it look like for a woman to sort of self-determine in terms of her sexual behavior, right? And these women in Lysistrata, they're not sexually self-determining that all they're doing is reacting to the men they're trying to manipulate the men using their own sexuality as some kind of currency or bartering material that's not sexual freedom that's a very constrained set of possibilities for female sexuality to say yes or to say no that's the only power they have is to grant or withhold their own access to their own bodies right and the women in the red word find themselves kind of in similar situations and they don't want to be there Mm -hmm. they want to find a different way you know but it's it, it it's difficult. It proves difficult. It's really easy to, to be outrageous or slutty or to go too far or be cast beyond public approval when you do that as, as you know, the female students in the novel are discovering. Well, I'm very glad that you, uh, you don't like the idea of withholding sex. That's, uh, <laughs> that's great. Hey, this isn't personal. This is uh, fictional. Well, congratulations on, on uh, writing a provocative thought-provoking novel. Thank you very much. You're working on, well, should, I should let you sort of dwell with the fact that you've won a big, big award, <laughs> yes, I'm but, you're, but you're working on another <laughs> novel as we speak. It's no? true. It, it's interesting that those two things are sort of in my mind at the same time. I'm having such a good time with this award, and I'm here in Ottawa yeah. to you know, be feted. And yesterday, we, all of us, 14 winners of the Governor General's Award, stood up in the gallery in the House of Commons. And all, they, all the MPs stood up and turned and looked at us, looked us in the face and gave us a standing ovation. And it was 
we just sat through question period before that. Mm, and it's joke, hot in there, yeah. and it's a bit dispiriting listening yeah. to the level of it. But then, uh, but then there was this moment where we were called to stand up, and the speaker said all our names, and then, and it was such a visceral thrill having all those eyes on us, and, and you know, some of them were mouthing "Well done" and, yeah. and "Thumbs up," and mm. and it felt like exactly the the acknowledgement it was meant to be, where the the people making decisions in our country were acknowledging the writers, you know, the, and the, the, the cultural writers. workers, yeah. you know, and, and that yeah. felt fantastic. It was a real moment that obviously they'd planned to be like that and it felt great. It worth every of second of question period. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, at the same time, I'm deep in the in the murky territory of the of finishing the first draft of my next novel. And I don't have a clue where it's heading or how I'm going to find my way out of the the swamp. What's of it, it about? It's about the um, it's about the in, not the invention but the creation of a important deck of tarot cards in the early 20th century. Hmm. And so the novel, in the same way that I sort of am playing with Greek mythology, with the red word. Um, this novel plays with the structure of, or the sequence of the tarot cards, and I'm doing some formal experimentation along that and, and, and along those lines. And as I said, I have no idea how to, how to resolve a lot of the problems I've created for myself in the novel, but it's part of the process, I guess. But one of the things the the award um, has changed about my writing practice is that I. I feel um, I sat down, you know, in the last couple of weeks to to work on it as I usually do, and and I felt this strange kind of expanding of the frontiers of possibility in the work itself. So instead of trying to stitch things up and make them tidy for readers to have access to, instead I find myself feeling a deep sense of permission to go deeper and go wilder and pursue the outreaches of my own or the, the outer reaches of my own talent, I guess, or my mm. own knowledge as a writer. And it's true to, uh, to trust it, to trust it because yeah. it's been recognized in some way, yeah. you know, and I, and I, and I hate to think that I'm writing for public recognition. Well, I'm not because you can't possibly write a 300 page novel over five years if you're just waiting for the public recognition it has to be much more internally motivated by that. Mm -hmm. But it is true that the recognition is is changing things and expanding them for me a little bit, um, artistically speaking and creatively speaking, and that's kind of a fantastic effect that, of course, I'm only just starting to realize because it just happened. It's exciting. Feels pretty good. I feel very lucky, yes. Uh, the Red Word is published by ECW in Canada. They came out with a hardback and a paperback no, at the same time? No, it's or? been published in paperback. And in the, in the States, it's published by Grove Atlantic, which is a, a large yeah. independent press. Sure is. Press. Yeah. Great press. And it's actually coming out in March in the UK um, from a, another small press, uh, a literary press called Tramp. Oh. And they're they've, they're putting together a beautiful package for the novel. The cover is fantastic, and I'm just I'm just seeing that now. You know, it's just coming out now. I love what uh, ECW has done with your cover. They've got this kind of gloss uh, on it. That's there's also kind of a it looks like a smashed window pane. That if you you have to turn the, the cover to the light to see it. Yeah, you can't really see it online. You know, no. when you're buying the book, you have to have it in your hands. And it's beautiful. There's a key moment of uh, smashed glass that has really, really <laughs> catastrophic results in the book. So that's uh, a real. That's a real. Uh, they're picking up on that. That's a yeah. That's once you've read it and you pick it up again, you're like, oh, that's what that is. <laughs> no, thank you, Sarah. It's been great to talk to you. It's been really nice to chat with you, Nigel. Thank you. Sarah Henstra is a professor of English at Ryerson University. 
and author of the young adult novel Mad Miss Mimic, and most recently the adult fiction novel The Red Word. Thanks again. Thanks.